Our text on this first Sunday in Lent, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Welcome to all of you this morning. We're going to be continuing with select passages from Luke in this Lenten season. But this morning, it's of course appropriate that we would pick up exactly where we left off just a few weeks ago now. If you were with us a few weeks ago, you recall that Jesus had been baptized by John in Luke chapter 3. That the heavens had opened, that the Spirit had descended, the voice had spoken, And Jesus was shown and declared in that moment to be the King, the Messiah, the suffering servant of God, who would bring about our healing and our salvation. Or, if you recall it, to use the language of Simeon from Luke chapter 2, Jesus would be the glory of Israel. Because as this king and Messiah and suffering servant, he would bring about the promise to Abraham that in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That Jesus would be the one to accomplish Israel's purpose. To be the solution to the problem of sin. Sin that entered the world through Adam. Sin that has to be defeated by the second Adam. And so then you recall how Luke ends chapter 3 with a genealogy following on this declaration at the baptism that begins with Jesus and ends not with Abraham, as Matthews does, but with Adam, the Son of God. But that Son of God (laughs) failed. Now it's time to watch as this Son of God, the second Adam, succeeds. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, is the account of the temptation of Jesus. And it's the coming together of these two themes of Jesus as the Messianic King, suffering servant of Israel, and Jesus as the second Adam, come to deliver the people of God. The text says it was the devil who tempted Jesus, But I think there's something we ought to see right up front. That it's God who wanted this. The devil plays the prominent role in this passage, to be sure, but we cannot miss that it's not the devil who's in charge here. Jesus is with the devil because that's exactly where God wants him. Right? Verse 1 of our text And Jesus, Luke writes, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So the temptation of Jesus isn't just one more attempt by the devil to hinder or to undo God's work. It's an integral part of Jesus' mission as the king, the Messiah, the suffering servant, who was also the second Adam. This was necessary. 
This was required. Jesus had to face temptation. He had to be tempted in every respect, as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 puts it. Yet be without sin. And so it was the Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness, who led him right to the devil. Even while the devil is tempting Jesus, it's God who's ultimately in control. It's God who not only allows, but causes Jesus to be tempted. Because God has a purpose in it. That his son, the messianic king of Israel, will undo the harm that has ensued from the sin of Adam. So as one author puts it, this was no accidental encounter. It was rather a deliberate showdown, willed by the divine author of salvation history. Everything hangs in the balance. And I say that because there could be no defeat of sin had Jesus not faced the possibility of sin as a real possibility and emerged victorious. And I want to underline that point because my guess, um, my guess is that we tend to read this text. Come on in. Here, let's go around to this side. Yep. that there could be no defeat of sin had Jesus not faced the possibility of sin as a real possibility and emerged victorious. And I want to underline that point because here's my guess. My guess is that we tend to read this text and think something like, well, of course Jesus resisted temptation. I mean... He was God, after all. Wasn't he? So when Jesus was tempted, I mean, all he had to do was draw on some of that divine power. But if that's anywhere close to right in terms of the way we may think, there's a problem there. Because that's not how Scripture talks about this. So if you're willing to do this, I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. This is on the Bibles on the table, either page 581 in the small print or page 1103 in the big print version. I want you to see elsewhere in the New Testament how they talk about the significance of the temptation of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 I'm going to spend a lot of my time on this point. Marion preached on the parallel passage in Matthew last year and did a fabulous job with the actual temptations themselves. I'm dwelling on this point in this sermon mainly because I think it's critical to how we think through what's happening. So start there, Hebrews 2, back up to verse 10, if you would, though we're really going to start in 14 to be, to be thorough, but start in 10 so that we see the link. Verse 10. For it was fitting that 
he for whom and by whom all things exist, so this is God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's Jesus, the Son of God. Now listen to this, verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that is Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's you and me, all have one source, or literally, all are of one. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So, <laughs> lots happening there. I'm not preaching on Hebrews right now. But you see, we're talking about Jesus and about those who are sanctified, whom he calls brothers and sisters, the children God has given him. Now start in verse 14. And there's that mysterious phrase in verse 11 that, that all have one source. Now, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, the same flesh and blood. That, I think, is what verse 11 meant when it said, all have one source, or all are of one. That Jesus partook of flesh and blood. He became like us. Why? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. I.e., he brings about this promise given to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. Now, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. Hang on to that. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And now watch where this all ends up. What's the key? to Jesus being the way God the Father brings about the forgiveness of sins as the way in which he helps the offspring of Abraham, what is the crucial thing? Verse 18. Four. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He himself suffered when tempted. I want you to feel the full weight of that. I've heard a lot of sermons on Luke chapter 4. We cannot come to Luke chapter 4 and think, well, yeah, but, I mean, it's not that big a deal, is it? <laughs> because Jesus just, he just, of course he was fine. Because it's not all that hard for him, really. He was God. You see, because if we think like that, we're less than biblical 
in our view of the Incarnation. Ultimately, it's a mistaken view of the Incarnation that robs texts like this of their real significance. Listen to how it's put in one other place in Hebrews. This is Hebrews 4, verse 17. Just listen. 4, verse 17, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Here's a question for you to ponder this Lent. Do you deep down really believe that Jesus is like you in every respect? What's your reaction to me asking that question? What might the implications of that fact be in your life if you really stop to think about it? Like you in every respect. You see, the key to understanding the temptation of Jesus and what's actually going on here is the incarnation. (laughs) Because you and I have a tendency to be little docetists. Do you know that term, docetists? It's fun, isn't it? You have a new term this week. There was sitting in the first service this like top-level theologian, and I'm like, ah, what am I doing? Here I am trying to unpack this concept, but I'll try. I won't go into the full history of it, but docetism is an ancient heresy that says Jesus only seemed to be a man. He only seemed to be a human being, which, of course, I know none of you would explicitly say, so I'm not accusing you of that. But if we ask the question, how could God have a human mind and be God? And then we conclude in the end that, well, I guess really he didn't, that Jesus resisted temptation because, well, he was God. And what we mean is that he somehow experienced temptation as no big deal because all he had to do was draw on his divine nature. No! That's not the gospel. Hebrews 2 verse 18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You can't draw on your divine nature when you're being tempted. Neither could Jesus. The key is whether or not Jesus was really human. Now, I'll get to what happened here in a minute. But do you see this point? I know we all affirm this, but do we really believe it? Jesus didn't resemble humankind. He was made like us in every respect. It's not just that he had a physical body. It's that he had a human mind as well. And I've said this once before, but it must be repeated that when Jesus became human, he placed the exercise of his divine knowledge and power under the discretion of God the Father. He emptied himself of it. He was made like us and not as some kind of simulation. It was absolute. Jesus had to grow in wisdom and stature, to use the Lucan language. He says, I only do what I see my Father doing. He must learn the will of his Father. And I think the usual problem that we have as Christians, 
isn't in believing that Jesus was God. We, we got there somehow. It's more believing Jesus was a man. Fully human. Like us in every respect. And that means that there wasn't some divine compartment in Jesus' brain that he could access when he came to something like being tempted by the devil. So that it wasn't all that big a deal, really. <laughs> Luke emphasizes that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Holy Spirit for a reason in verse 1. And I think it's this, that we're to see that Jesus withstood the temptations by the power of the Spirit. That he derived his power to resist by depending upon God for strength, just like you and I have to do. Can you begin to sense the implications of seeing Jesus' life in this way? The fullness of the Spirit produces the nine fruits of the Spirit, the seventh of which is faithfulness. <coughs> right? How do you resist temptation in your life, brothers and sisters? What is the key? Well, what's the key to how you live as a Christian? How you live by faith? How you be faithful and exercise righteousness in your life? It's the Spirit. Spent a year in Galatians, we know that. It was the same for Jesus. Think about that this week, would you? Jesus resisted temptation as a real man. We need that. We need that to be true. Because you know what it means. It's Hebrews 2 verse 18 again. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Are you ever tempted? Jesus helps you. How? Well, Fundamentally, he sends his spirit. That's how. Do you ever consciously ask for the power of the spirit when you face temptation? Try it. Try it. Now, I'm more than halfway through this sermon and I've only talked about a little bit of verse 1. So, here's a question then that moves us into verse 2. And not forgetting what we've just said, but pressing ahead so we can cover, in some sense, this text. Verse 2, why then is Jesus there for 40 days? I mean, that's verse 2, right? Starts mid-sentence. Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. First of all, note something that's sometimes missed, which is that Jesus was tempted for 40 full days, none of which Luke discusses, Right? It's not just these final three temptations when Jesus is really hungry and things are hard. It's 40 days. He was tempted in every respect as we are, Hebrews chapter 4 says. That has to mean that there's a lot of the devil throwing things at Jesus in this time. Why 40 days? I mean, this is, of course, where the 40 days of Lent comes from. And, of course, that's 40 days, not counting Sundays, for those of you 
who are trying to figure out how this works, why Lent starts on an Ash Wednesday, which is more than 40 days before Easter. It's because it's 40 days, not counting Sundays, which are never fast days. Sundays are always feast days, so they're not part of Lent, technically speaking. You know this. But what's the biblical connection for 40 days? Well, the key connection is that, of course, it was the 40 years of Israel being in the desert wandering, right? A 40-year sojourn during which God's people repeatedly failed, of course. We've already said that Jesus here is acting not just as the second Adam, but as the Messiah of Israel. He's the one who will bring about the salvation that was always the purpose of Israel. He will succeed, not just where Adam failed, but where Israel failed. And so Luke continues here with this connection of the second Adam and the messianic king, suffering servant figure of Israel. They are one and the same. The narrative lines of the Bible come together in Jesus Christ. And of course, that parallel with Israel is the key because Jesus now answers the devil's temptations with three references from this brief section of Deuteronomy that we'll talk about in a minute that makes reference to Israel's tests and failures. So obviously that would be front and center. But if you're an Old Testament reader, it's not just the 40 years in the wilderness, right? There are some other things. It's the 40 days of rain in Noah's flood. It's Ezekiel's 40-day burden of the sin of Judah in Ezekiel 4. It's the 40-day duration of Moses' fast, Deuteronomy 9. It's the 40-day duration of the fast of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. It's Moses spending 40 days on the mountain to receive the covenant in Exodus 24. I mean, in other words, what's the point? The point is that 40 is a number that in the Jewish imagination is charged. Charged with significance, with a sense of trial and of testing in preparation for something new. And it's the basis for why we observe 40 days of fasting in preparation for Easter. Our Lord was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness because this is the starting point of his public ministry. This is the crucial time of testing and trial before the new work of the Lord. He ate nothing during those days, Luke writes, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And then come three temptations. Number one is in verse 3. The devil says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Quoting from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. The second is in verse 6. To you I will give all this authority and their glory, says the devil, the glory of all the kingdoms of the world, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. 
And thirdly then is verse 9, where from the pinnacle of the temple the devil says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, and we read it this morning, didn't we, in Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. And I'm sure it won't surprise you at all to know that there's no shortage of reflection and study on these three temptations and the questions and the issues that we could discuss now would be many. On one level, it seems like these temptations are unique to Jesus. And God can't want his beloved son to be famished with hunger, can he? And if God wants Jesus to become sovereign over the world, which is, after all, what Gabriel said to Mary, then why not go for it in one stride? And if Jesus is Israel's Messiah, then why not prove it? Psalm 91's about you, Jesus. Show it. Display your power. So they seem on one level perhaps unique to Jesus. But then on another level, I think these three temptations aren't really far from each one of us. Note how in every case, the temptation is to do what is attractive. Even what appears to be good Yet, in every case as well, that which appears good in some sense isn't right. And Jesus is able to see through the devil's deception by rightly applying the word of God. So, as our time now moves towards the end, let's reflect briefly here on each of these three temptations. To make bread seems innocent. But Jesus had followed the Father's will in going to the wilderness and fasting. He'd done that filled with the Spirit, and as of yet the Father had not seen fit to provide food. Should Jesus make his own? Christ was tempted to provide for his material needs, but apart from the will of the Father, are we ever so tempted? To go beyond what God's word would allow to satisfy our personal needs or desires? Just as God proved himself able to provide for his people manna in the wilderness, he could do so for Jesus when the time was right. And Jesus knows it. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And then to receive the kingdoms, well, these were already promised to him. This seems expedient. They're his by right. Does it really matter how they're obtained? The kingdoms of the world were Satan's to offer. Jesus doesn't challenge that point. All he would have to do is just give a little honor to the devil. But here again, Jesus knows his Father's will. He cannot receive this power at the devil's hands. He has come in the name of God to wrest it out of the devil's hands. Are we ever so tempted? Not to become the ruler of nations, but to take shortcuts to the kingdom of God? 
thinking that maybe if we can have more influence or if we can be in a position to do more good, does how we get there really matter? Why endure a cross when you can be the king right now? But Jesus knows that the paths of this world do not lead to the kingdom of God. To worship God is to trust Him and to leave the results in His hands. Jesus embraced the cross by refusing the easy way and as His followers we must do the same. If anyone would come after me, he or she must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. To do anything else is idolatry. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then finally, aren't all things possible for the one who believes? To prove the very words of God to be true, what could be better? What would better demonstrate your faith than to take that step off the roof and make God prove that he's as good as his word Couldn't Jesus trust God to bring him safe to the ground and so provide this spectacular proof of the power of faith which would compel others to believe in him? Just step out in faith, Jesus. God will catch you when you fall. Do we face such temptations? Probably not in the literal way Jesus did, but what about our own leaps of faith that actually are just testing the grace of God even as we act contrary to his will for us? Rationalized disobedience, you might call it. Oh, but God will come through no matter what I do, right? His promises are certain. But asking for such proof only shows that we have yet to learn the meaning of faith. To test God is the opposite of trusting him. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now look at In every case, all three, what the devil proposed, what he offered, appears in some sense to be good. But in every case, what might have seemed good wasn't right. So what's the key to knowing the difference? How, as a human being filled with the Spirit, did Jesus navigate his temptation? Well, he did it with the Bible, of course. The key to knowing the difference between what seems good and what is right is filling our lives with the Word of God. Filled with the Spirit we can then resist the temptations of the devil as Jesus did. Jesus, who was fully human in body and mind, tempted in every way and yet without sin because he knew the scriptures. In response to each of the three temptations, Christ answered with scripture by the power of the Spirit. That is to be our way as well. So let me close on a personal note. It was some 23 years ago, in the very week after which I came to faith, 
that I received in the mail a handwritten letter from one of the elders at First Baptist Church in little northeast Pennsylvania. I mean, it's a small Baptist church, but it's where I came to faith. And the very week of that, I got a letter in the mail. It wasn't a long letter, about two pages. And in it, this elder wrote to me and directed my attention to Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11. Now, don't turn there, just listen. You know the text. Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11. I can still see his handwriting. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. We reread the commandments this morning on the first Sunday of Lent. Let me not wander from your commandments. And then this is the key verse. Verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what Jesus did. He wasn't pulling on his divine nature to resist temptation. He was, by the power of the Spirit, using the Word of God. And so in my very first week as a follower of Jesus, this is what this elder wanted to say to me. Store up the Word of God in your heart that you might not sin against Him. And that's a word that remains relevant to me 23 years later. He might have said, be like Jesus, who faced temptation fully as a man, filled with the Spirit, ready to speak the very words of God. Now, I have often failed, dear friends. I have often failed. But Jesus never did. And so because of that, may this Lent be a time to renew our commitment to follow Him in the way of faithfulness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.